Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Anton Tonev. Anton has global macro asset management experience with an emerging markets undertone based on risk factor investing, exploring core trends and using non-conventional economics, cross-discipline ideas and basic common knowledge. He's an independent consultant and a private investor with over 20 years of experience in the financial services industry. So Anton, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you on. Tell us a bit about yourself. So I've uh, started in the business in uh, in '96 in, in New York in the financial services industry. Um, out of university, um, went to Wharton and University of Pennsylvania, um, and I joined Morgan Stanley in New York, uh, and later on in London, um, working in the emerging markets uh, trading. What did you read at Wharton, uh, Anton? I did uh, economics and uh, finance. So it was um, a degree, uh, the, the way Wharton or University of Pennsylvania is, it's, it's a college and, and um, the business school. So you do, I did a dual degree from the college in economics, like pure economics and finance, which is more, more the practical side of it from uh, Wharton. And was that with a view to entering the capital markets? No, not at all. I think I got into the capital markets completely by chance. I wanted to go and do a PhD in economics. Uh, and um, I got in, in a few universities and then um, it was very common for people to go and work in, on Wall Street. And um, a f- very good friend of mine had gotten on a job at JP Morgan and he urged me to uh, go through an interview process uh, with a few banks. And um, I got in at Morgan Stanley. and. Um, yeah, I joined. I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't even know the difference between sales and trading and investment banking. Uh, I managed to go into sales and trading, which I think I got, I got lucky with that. Um, investment banking has just two long hours. And um, I realized that in hindsight that um, sales and trading probably fits me better. And uh, I just took it uh, from there. Um, I think it fitted me better, uh, my character. Um, and um, I never looked back really into going back and doing a PhD. So you're a, a you're a, a ruthless bastard then. Oh, uh, he was he was a ruthless <laughs> bastard. What does he do now? <laughs> well, I, I hope I've changed. I hope I've changed when it comes to this. Yes, yeah. Um. So um. Yeah. So I did um, Morgan Stanley until two thousand and two. And I decided to become even more ruthless bastard by going <laughs> on the hedge fund side. <laughs> but obviously, um, um, I, I only stayed there for a year. So that tells you that I have changed. Um, I, I was at More Capital for one year in London, again, emerging markets. Um, oh, More Capital, yeah. Uh, and uh, it was actually, uh, it, it was both the best of times and the worst of times, if you know what I mean. It's sure. um it's a great learning experience, more capital. Um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful um, institution. Um, you know, it's, um, it's the classical macro guys. And I learned a lot, but it's a brutal environment. It's absolutely brutal environment. And um, not just the environment, but also the, the uh, 
it, it's, it is rootless bastards. I mean, this is generalization here, nothing to do with the name itself. But yeah, you get at the core of that. And um, just just for I the people who, who may not know what you mean by that, is it was it just like the hours or you had to perform no. or you it was comp- no, competitive not. or I mean, that's industry wide, isn't it, really? But yeah, it's not the hours. And as I say, you know, it's the institution is, is a top institution. And the good thing is I learned so much. It was it's a completely different environment from the from the banking and sales side. Uh, at least from where I came from, uh, because they focus on um, you. You read a lot. You really do a fundamental analysis. You read everything. That's where that's where I learned to be a generalist. If you know what I mean. Even though I was specializing in emerging markets and European time zone um, emerging markets, but that's where you learn everything. On the sales side, um, you you really a cock in the machine. You. Um, you do your own markets, whether you're trading FX forwards or bonds or whatever, and you have no idea really what's going on beside you, beside your area. At, in a hedge fund, especially in a macro hedge fund, even though you have your own specialization, your interaction is with people uh, that do other things and there's much more interaction. Plus, you are urged to read more uh, general things and, um, and you have more time to do that because obviously on the sell side, uh, most of the time you'll be market making, so you need to be glued on the screen. Mm. On the buy side, um, you do a lot more reading, a lot more analysis. You don't do that many trades per day, if any. So um, you have the chance to learn much more. Uh, that's the positive side. The, the downside is that um, you need basically to be on top of the game. You need to be really... Um, making making money you need to be risk managing uh and uh, the 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 requirements are much higher than being on the sell side um the scrutiny is much higher um so you know it's um but obviously the you get reward for that in a different way did you um, have your own book then were you trading your own book so, and, and doing yeah, your read- yeah yeah that that was the issue. That was that was really the issue. Is you, you were sharing a book with uh, someone in in New York, uh, and uh, who was much more senior than me, and um, it wasn't the best working environment. Yeah. Um, what happens when you disagree with something? That's that's difficult, isn't it? When you have differing opinions. Yes, I think that was the issue. Uh, partially, and again, that person was much more senior. Much oh, obviously, he was more experienced than me. Mm. He had been at the firm for much longer, um, and. Um, I think it was very much of personal. We didn't just click, and um, I think that was that was really the main reason why I left. Uh, the fact that I couldn't make my own decisions. That um, the there's someone. Uh, there was always someone on top of me with, uh, and that was that's okay. But if if personally you don't really get along, uh, then it becomes a really difficult um, time. Yeah, it, it, it calls to mind the quote from Warren Buffett, who said, uh, who once said that my idea of an, a, a, a committee decision is looking in the mirror. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I wonder why they do do have these joint books because I, I traded on a joint book um, a while a long while ago in a bank, and I and I couldn't understand why you just wouldn't have a separate one, and and then you're just managed by your own yeah. performance. I mean, what I don't yeah. see the advantage. I mean, you could have someone overseeing it and saying, okay, yeah. pare this down a bit. I think you're taking a bit too much risk, and then you can decide whether you decide to do that yourself and on your head be it. But trading a joint book is is fraught with difficulty. 
When when you were working at uh, Morgan Stanley, Anton, I was working at uh, Merrill Lynch in London, and the worst uh, as a sale, as a salesman in my case, bond salesman. And I, I think at the time I received the worst career advice I've ever received. Not that I not that I took it seriously anyway. When the the boss of the division said, "I think you should become a specialist," and I thought that was the the, the singly worst thing ever. Would you agree with that? Yes. Well, <laughs> I would agree with it now. Now, I mean, so that that's what twenty years ago, twenty odd years ago. Exactly. Uh, I, I think at that time, I think specialization was still the hot thing to be. Uh, I mean, look, gen- I, I firmly believe in the journalist idea now. Um, in the old days, 20 years ago, the only people that could afford to be generalists were really the very senior guys, and not just guys, obviously. Um, but but um, if you were not the top, uh, you know, hedge fund manager, or, or or if you're not running um, a department in a bank, um. You know, you couldn't be a generalist. It was just you're just not allowed to be a generalist, and you wouldn't be rewarded you to be a generalist. I mean, I think this is there's a very serious point here about the makeup of the of the the financial system and particularly the sort of the trading and investment banking world. The anecdote that I always use is on this point is that when I went back, so I, I, so I worked at Merrill Lynch for a few years as a as a as a bond generalist as a as a salesperson who was a sort of bond generalist, and then I went back to the the dealing room a few years later, and the guys there who were trading, I would happily trust with you know managing any kind of fixed income portfolio but where uh, by by this stage i'd moved on i was working at private and the private client division so i was doing a bit of everything and when i when i went back and and saw and people just chatting about what they were doing in their sort of pa accounts their personal accounts when i saw the kind of toxic rubbish that they were buying in terms of stocks for their for their own portfolios it suddenly it suddenly dawned on me that you know, that that specialization and in this case we're talking about an entire asset class Gives you no insight necessarily whatsoever into another gigantic asset class, which is in this case is equities. So it struck me then. So I've, I've nurtured this suspicion for at least twenty five years now, which is that the city is appallingly bad, and Wall Street is appallingly bad at teaching people or putting people in a position to see outside their tiny little silo. Yes, and you no, know, I completely agree with, with you. And and that, and that has implications in terms of how financial crises begin, because as, as somebody pointed out more recently it's always the bond guys that fuck it up yes <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get they, back to who that who that was i'll have to try and trace that that yeah. agent zero <laughs> but um so up to date now then anton what what do you what do you do these days i uh, so uh, i've i've left the business i left london uh, so after more after more capital I went back to i went back to the to the uh, sell side i hbc um was looking for someone to completely restructure their emerging market desk. Uh, and uh, I decided to do that. Uh, I became co-head of the desk in London. Um, and uh, I stayed in HBC until 2018. Mm. So I left uh, and I did various jobs in, in HBC. Um, I, uh, three different jobs, actually. But um, 2018, I decided to, to call it quits. We did a with the family, we did. A, we went for a year in Asia. Uh, and I was trying to get something going there, uh, and that didn't work out for different reasons. Um, and uh, we've come back to Europe. We live in Italy now, and I 
basically manage my own money uh, and uh, look at markets and um, try to enjoy the the food and the the, the weather that Lifestyle. I didn't enjoy in London. So and the coronavirus and the added coronavirus now. Well, yes, I to a certain extent I feel um, I guess lucky to be in the middle of nowhere. I always thought that's a disadvantage because obviously social interaction is important for us in the market, well, for anyone actually. And we're literally in the middle of nowhere. But now I'm like, well, actually, maybe it's not such a bad thing to be here. Let's just hope that this thing, um, I mean, we can talk about the coronavirus if you want more, but um, yeah, let's just hope that uh, this thing somehow passes and yeah. the authorities know how to deal with it, et cetera, et cetera. But yes, yeah. whereabouts are you in, in Italy? You are in um, the north? No, no, no. I mean, this, we're in the south, south of Rome, so it's halfway between Rome and uh, and Napoli, Naples. Oh, fantastic! It's, actually, it's 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 on on the beach. You know, we uh, we bought this house in the good old days when I was uh, still in the business, and um, it was empty for, for you know uh, for ten years. We only came here in the summer, and we decided to uh, to give it a try here to see yeah, how it is to to live. Like this, um, yeah. So yeah, that's 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 what we do. The kids go to a local school here. My my wife is Italian, so that that helps obviously. Lovely. Um, but the winters are brutal. That's the only thing. I mean, I'm uh, not, well, yeah. They're not that brutal. Uh, it's actually the problem is because the problem is the wind, because we're literally on on the sea, and the problem is the wind that comes out, and the wind could be very strong, but they're not cold. Mm. They're quite mild. Um, no, they're, they're pleasant. The winters are pleasant. In in the south, the winters are pleasant. No. Yeah. But tell us a bit about your, your so you're managing your own money. Is that your yeah. a personal fund or do you manage other people's money as well? No, no, I don't manage. I, I manage family money. I don't manage any external money. Uh, I, it's, it's my money and, you know, it's really family money. Right. So, um, so and, you, uh, and you specialize in emerging markets then or do you venture into some no. of the other markets? I'm... I don't specialize in emerging markets. That's what I used to do. Yeah. So I, I, I would, I would, I would say that emerging markets is something that I know well. Uh, but uh, in terms of asset class, I FX and rates is probably what I specialize in. Um, I would not do individual equities. I would do individual indices, um, like ETFs or, or futures. Uh, but really, it's FX and rates that I, I would look at. Uh, commodities, I will do a few commodities, uh, the general commodities, uh, like gold and oil. I would not touch any of the other commodities simply because it's completely different market. And, um, you have to be, you have to know what you're doing in commodities. Um, so when, when we recently met in London, that was on the back of, um, something that you do called beyond Overton. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Right. So this is just my blog. Um, now I've, written a few things externally just because someone noticed what I've written on LinkedIn and asked me to contribute. Uh, and, um, I, I enjoy writing. I mean, I continue to write on my blog, which is unedited and, um, it, it's, um, something that I put down. I mean, this is the process I, during the day, I, I read and I look at markets and, uh, I speak to people and ideas come um, into my mind and sometimes they crystallize and I put them down, uh, on the blog, but again, it's not edited. Um, 
it's really as they come, they go on the block. Now, the externally, I, I try to edit stuff and I send it to a, to a few people, uh, and that's more like a newsletter thing. Uh, but uh, this is something that I don't decide. It's not. Uh, it's not a business. It does. I'm not planning to be, become a business unless there's some massive demand or something. Uh, and that's because um, you know it, it really depends on on the way I I want to go forward. I mean, it's something that I enjoy. Definitely, I enjoy writing. That's what I did in the last two years at, at HBC. I was head of thematic research, so. I enjoy writing, um, but I also realized that um, a big part of writing is editing, and that's a very difficult job. Um, so it, when you put the two together, um, you know it take it takes some time to write a good piece, to write a piece now that people would read, uh, that will capture people's attention, um, and that's that's a very different skill set. It's one thing to have ideas, uh, to put them on paper. It's completely another thing to uh, actually present those ideas to, to people in, in a written form. In a written form, it's much more difficult. And, and did, for, the, for the benefit of, of listeners who may not have heard it, do you want to explain what the Overton window is? Okay, so the, Over, the Overton window is all the accepted um, ideas in society, the one that um, we go by every day. Um, beyond Overton, outside of the Overton window, is anything that uh, would be difficult to accept uh, anything um, that's outside of the common understanding. Uh, and um, beyond Overton is, is an attempt to basically capture ideas that are not in the common um, knowledge and not in the common uh, ac acceptance, so to say. Not because these ideas um, um, necessarily it isn't, it, the idea is to capture the ideas that actually make sense. So you shouldn't be just going out with crazy ideas just because they're crazy. You should go out with ideas that actually make sense, that, but they are not uh, common knowledge or they're not part of the common understanding of how the system works, for example. And to try to move the window, to try to move the Overton window towards those ideas uh, that you think actually may be beneficial so is 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 sorry to interrupt. Is the implication then that the successful or the most successful investment ideas start outside the Overton window? Yes, I mean yes. Yeah, so there are two ways to look at it. So it's and it's partially how you know whether you. I guess the equivalent is um, momentum trading, whereby you just go with the momentum. That momentum trading is you basically within the Overton window. Uh, and um, and then you have um, the other side is uh, where you try to to find the turning point when momentum changes, um, you know. And then so you either make money. Most of the money is made when you went inside the Overton window, just because the trends are very strong and it's very difficult to push anything outside of the window. But there's one of those rare moments when the trend changes, so an idea becomes acceptable way actually there's a big windfall, whether it's in the markets or any, anywhere else. So you kind of, if, you, if we're talking about strictly about trading, if you focus too much on beyond Overton, then most of the time you will be losing money. And also possibly losing clients. And losing clients. So you have to be pragmatic about it. I mean, that's how I spend my time. You know, I, I'm, I'm not trying to be controversial um, uh, all the time. I'm not trying to 
to trade, uh, definitely not trying to trade against trend, but I am trying to be aware of, uh, of things that happen that could possibly change the, the trend. So I think that's the idea of, of Beyond Overton, um, is to, uh, to stay with the trend, uh, because that's, where, that's really where the money is made, but to be aware that things may be changing on, on the margin that can affect uh, the trend, and uh, it could actually possibly make a lot of money going the other way around. So um, why, why do you call it Overton? The Overton window is, if, if you Google it, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, I think it's named after a person. I don't remember exactly the first name of the person. Right. But uh, he, that person introduced this as um, Joseph Joseph P. Overton. Okay. okay. So, in terms of investment, or was it just a philosophy? No, no, about... no. It actually has nothing to do with investment. Okay. Okay. It's nothing to do with Cause, investment. Because so it, it sounds like just, you know, common sense in terms of managing the trend, but looking for things that yeah. could potentially come from other sides to upset yes. the trend. I mean, what I what I what I find fascinating about this is it, it chimes very much with there's a, a piece one of my favourite bits of sort of research or investment research which is from uh, research affiliates and I've, I've been using this for a few years now and these guys research affiliates is is, is a well known US uh, fund advisory and research firm as the name implies and they crunched the the numbers for US equity markets between 1967 and 2016 so a nice sort of 50 year period. And that was a statistically significant time series. And they, on their analysis, um, they and I can send this to anyone that's interested, they, they split the market into four types, value, momentum, quality, and growth. And over that period, the, and this is the, the really interesting piece about this, the, the facet of this, value was the best performing strategy, uh, however they define value, which I accept is a separate issue. Then it was momentum. And then both quality and growth actually gave you less returns than the index itself. So value and momentum worked, although they're completely different, whereas quality and growth actually lost you money relative to the market. How do they define quality well, against I'd, I'd, value? Again, that's, I'd, that's I'd, need, I'd, I'd need to ask them. You know, I'd need to do a bit yeah. more research into how yeah. they define it. So just yeah. taking, taking it at face value. Yeah. But what, what's fascinating to me about that is that value is basically – I, I would. I don't think it's stretching a point. So value is basically beyond the Overton window or outside the Overton window, whereas momentum is clearly within it. So in other words, it may make sense. It's certainly what we attempt to do is to try and combine both. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, yes. You. It wasn't even though the value. I mean, this is done 1967. You said to 2016. I mean, the if you look at the last 20 years, the values. Obviously underperformed. Well, the last ten years has been a slaughterhouse. A slaughter, right? So, um, but um, I've seen similar um, similar uh, research done comparing value to growth, um, where growth has trumped value in the last uh, ten years or so. But for sure, value has been really underperforming. Um, pretty much uh, all other factors. So. There was a, there was another piece that I saw. I'm trying to remember where I found it, and it was this is much more recent, and it's it basically pointed out that in in I think in on the first of March 2000, because we're recording this on the first of March, that on the first of March 2000, growth had beaten value on a one year, three year, five year, and ten year basis, but by the first of March 2001, value 
had beaten growth on a one-year, five-year, and 10-year basis. So in other words, just in, in the space of one year, all of that historic underperformance was reversed. And I would argue that there's just, we're just as likely to, potentially likely to see that the same kind of flip. Uh, and it could be coronavirus or the panic around coronavirus that causes that market, to, that, 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 that flip to happen. No, I think it is it is possible. I mean, again, it's uh, Michael is the, the market is a cycle, and um, it it is possible. I think we are, we are at the time where a lot of things could change, and the the trend has been going on for a long time. Um, so we have to be aware of um, of a possible um, change. So over the last week, pretty much all equity indices have dropped by about ten percent or so, plus or minus. Do you think? That, that that firstly that, that sell off was justified, and secondly, do you think that the that, that we may be on a, a much more significant at a much more significant tipping point now? So the the sell off was justified. It's not. I mean, I think um, I, I think the sell off was um, overdue, um, especially if you look at um, especially if you look at the momentum with which stocks were rallying um, since uh, September October last year. So valuations are subjective, and uh, valuations take a long time to play out. So it's almost uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't use valuation to say that stocks should have sold off. Um, but yes, momentum definitely was uh, very strong. Um, I mean, you you some of some of stocks like Tesla, for example, that was running that that had tripled within one month, uh, showed you that um, buying was quite extreme. I mean, we had Nasdaq was pretty much running on a daily basis since the beginning of the year. So the the market sell off last week was quite natural. Now, what was unnatural was the fact it sold off ten percent, which I think, um, from what I've seen over the weekend, is the largest ten uh, percent uh, drop within six days ever. So the the sell off was. Very extreme. Um, it's just the, the time frame within which happened. Now, whether that's justified, I don't know. I mean, just that. But all all that it tells you is that the the previous the preceding rally in stock market was also quite extreme. So you have an extreme rally, and then you have an extreme sell off. Now, to your second question, whether that heralds a change, we don't know yet. Um, we know we've had a similar sell off. The end of uh, December, um, the, the end of 2018, going into 2019, it was actually a bigger sell-off in terms of percentage, but it, it played over a couple of weeks, or so two or three weeks, I think. Um, so, in terms of percentage change, I think we need to see uh, a little bit more selling, but more importantly, we need to see uh, no no sustained bounces. So, you, I think you need you need a little bit of an L-shaped market action. For maybe a month, or maybe even two months, to um, to be comfortable saying that the trend has changed. At the moment, you can. Is I don't think anyone can make that claim based on what we've seen last week, because you could very easily have a rapid bounce in the market. Uh, we don't know exactly. To be honest, we don't know exactly what caused the the sell off. I mean, it's it's normal to look at the coronavirus uh, developments, and most likely. That's what caused the sell-off. But I mean, there were so many reasons why the market should have sold off even before the coronavirus. So it's kind of one thing that's the feather that broke the camel's back. Um, 
and we can only find out in hindsight. So yeah, to answer your question, it's a traders market at the moment. I don't think you go necessarily short and build a core short position. Um, even though on a day trading, um, that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm trading and on the, on, a, on the short side, but it's not something that, um, I would do on a very long term because I don't know if the trend has changed. The, the one thing I, I would suggest is that, I mean, I think probably most investors have been looking for clarity on the the topic of, you know, what do we get in what order do we have, let's say, deflation perhaps followed by inflation. And in my mind, what's happened as a result of issues around coronavirus is that narrative seems to be a lot clearer now to the extent that we now have a deflationary shock and that deflationary shock could easily then be followed by what some people are calling MOAS, the mother of all stimulus. So on the basis that, you know, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail to a central banker and a government that can only really, well, the central bank can only cut rates and the government can basically splurge money. And we may see, because I think Hong Kong's already sort of announced helicopter money, we, we, we now potentially see that. So it, 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 just looking at it for purely investment slash trading purposes, the narrative in my mind is clearer that we now have deflation followed by quite possibly extremely aggressive inflationary measures. So you don't really want to be out of the market necessarily. Yeah, but when you say inflationary measures... Um I mean, it's, it's going to be a different kind of inflation uh, because at the moment, and I think you're right, at the moment we had uh, monetary stimulus by the central bank. Uh, the fiscal stimulus that possibly coming, in, and I did mention Hong Kong, and I agree with that, that will cause actually goods inflation, not so much financial inflation. Mm. Um, and that will be exacerbated by something else you mentioned, uh, the fact that the, the global supply chains were already changing they were already shifting before the coronavirus on the back of deglobalization, um, on the back of the US-China trade war. So that trend had already been in place and the coronavirus only accelerated that, train, that trend. So you will, so you get a, so that's basically a massive supply shock. Um, the demand shock um, is gonna be over, overcome by the fiscal stimulus. So Potentially, you get quite a. You could get quite a lot of um, normal inflation. Something that actually uh, should be welcome in a normal scenario because we would be fighting. We we have been fighting this disinflationary scenario for since two thousand and eight. Um, so finally, on the positive side, you could see some inflation coming into the real economy. Question is whether um, that will be managed or could go like, get out of control in a similar way to, let's say, in the 1970s. Um, and what would be the reaction function from, from the central banks after that? So that we, we could be entering a completely different environment um, than what we've had so far um, on the back of uh, these developments, indeed. Strangely, the, uh, the euro has strengthened against the US dollar and to a certain extent, well, you actually against sterling as well and one one would have anticipated a move into either the us dollar or the yen i mean the yen has strengthened against the us dollar so i would suggest that the yen would be a currency to keep an eye on um that should strengthen further but 
I'm wondering whether the dollar will bite back after a little bit due to fears in the same way that gold and silver would do a sell-off anyway because they were moving up very aggressively, um, didn't react particularly positive to the news and have just been sort of sh- throwing the baby out with the bathwater in terms of selling. Yeah. But I wonder whether... I mean, what what may what may be happening there? I, I mean, again, it's always narratives and trying to justify stuff and movements after the fact. What may what what I sense may be happening there is it's a bit like what happened in two thousand and eight, which is investors or should I say traders slash speculators that are basically facing cash calls all over the yeah. place. They're selling positions that they have that have made yes, money. Yes. So they're selling and they're selling liquid stuff as well. So I'm not not personally too spooked by the idea that sort of gold and silver are coming off because I don't necessarily think that's a long term sustainable thing in the light of the sort of you know inflation that I think I, at least I anticipate in the months in, to it, come. They say they say the only thing that goes up in a crisis is volatility, and that that is pretty much what <laughs> what happened. But it's the the movement yeah, yeah. Of, of the dollar that su- not surprised me, but it was. Why would you buy the euro rather than the dollar? That didn't make a lot of sense to me. Put put me into a failing, catastrophically bad banking system, <laughs> yeah. please. Um, no, no, not really. Panic me into it, yeah. Just just to mention, I mean, the the, euro, the the rally in the euro is the same reason why gold sold off. It's uh, people were funding in euro. They were short euro EM, for example. They were short euro max. They were short all. So they they it's basically unwind of a, of a carry trade. So the euro was used as a as a funding currency. Uh, so it, it, very similar to the way yen was used to be used for as a funding currency. So mm. that's where you get. I mean, again, this is what I'm hearing. Um, mm. That's and interesting. Kind of makes make sense. So that's that, that that was the the rally in the euro last week. Um, and I completely agree with Tim. I think there were margin calls um, which needed. Uh, cash to be raised and gold and silver were the one assets that had rallied and obviously they were sold. Credit, credit, credit where credit's due. I mean, for people who who, who relish gallows humour, Twitter is coming into its own as a source of the most informed market commentary. And there's a, I mean, I've I've lost count of the number of really funny tweets I've seen over the last week. But one of my favourites is from Hipster uh, at Hipster underscore Trader from February twenty sixth saying. Investors panic selling the stocks they panic bought this morning after panic selling them yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, uh, when it comes to euro sterling, you didn't mention euro sterling. Yes. So, what, Paul, what's your view? I mean, you don't think um, um, euro should be rallying against sterling? I mean, I mean, obviously, with what's happening um, uh, with the Brexit negotiations. Uh, it will be. I mean, my view is it will be all over the place until uh, we know something uh, more firmer on this front. So I think euro sterling volatility is 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 quite natural until the end of the year, more or less. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that the thing with with sterling is that it's been under a cloud for such a long time, yeah. and what people over the past few years seem to have forgotten is that with central banks around the world having interest rates so low, when your currency is weak, that's actually helping. So when you look at the press and the press is saying, oh, you know, Brexit's going to make sterling collapse. It's awful. You know, and everyone's, you know, the central banks are trying to induce that to kickstart the economy. So it's been a boon for the UK to have lower interest rates. So despite the press trying to make out that our economy is collapsing and in a really terrible state, 
vis-a-vis Europe, they've not been able to 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 press that narrative home because it's not been true. And so a weaker sterling has helped us ensure, yeah. and therefore we're going to see some pretty good numbers coming out of the U- it's, UK. It's, yeah, it's very reminiscent of the ERM situation in 1992 and everyone's talking down the economy and then we get this big sort of devaluation, which has been a sort of creeping devaluation over some some years now and it's actually the best thing that the best thing that we would have wanted and so and so from here um have we have we rallied enough to counteract that is the is the question like are yeah. we, is it was 120 as far as we could go against the euro um yeah. before we start to perform badly or, or all of it reverses and i i think there's there should be a bit more in the tank there really there yeah. should be um well the People were generally long cable. I mean, they, they were long cable against both the euro and the dollar. Mm. So I think it's uh, the sell-off in cable is partially that. Yes, uh, I, I, I think I think you're right. But it's um, I I would have been more comfortable with sterling against the euro rather than sterling against the dollar, mm-hmm. just because mm-hmm. of 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 you know the events that are unfolding. Um, yeah. So. For that reason, yeah, I mean, I think you could see a natural bounce in sterling given given the fact that actually the economy could be doing much better in the next few years than many commentators would have hoped or expected, and therefore but, sterling would rally. Um, but against, uh, but fighting up against the dollar, I think, would be a harder job as the, the dollar will be strong um, in sure. the next few months. But against the euro, I would have expected more more sort of troubled waters if you like and therefore sterling in my mind should be breaking through 120 and surprising a few a few people as it heads to 130 but you know the way it's come off this 120 level like falling out of bed it's it's not been good so so we i might need to reassess that view um but that can i can i I ask you on on this view um do do, uh, what do you what happens what is the general view in terms of um, whether they will reach an agreement with Europe, or they? Is there a risk of no deal? I th- I would sorry to, to interrupt, uh, Paul. I, my sense is that I think people, the market is starting to price in the likelihood of no deal in a way that was never it was never doing for the previous three years. And do you think that's a problem, though, Tim? I mean, I would have deferred to you on that anyway, to be honest. Um, no, not not at all. I mean, I, I would be all in favour because. I, what what I I mean it's impossible to be objective and it's doubly impossible for me because I hate the the EU project so so much. Yeah, I have that but, problem as well. So you know, as I'm trying trying to be clear, even though everything, both my head and my heart, just um, are repelled by the you know the the whole you know the whole nature of the debate. But what I suspect is the case. What I, what seems to me to be the case is that Brussels has not yet woken up to the fact that we voted out. So they're yes. conducting their discussions as if this, this is this could still yet be reversed. And the reality, and the reality is that since the election and since the appointment of Boris Johnson, the installation of Boris Johnson as our new prime minister, I get the very strong feeling that you know that we're going to be playing hardball now in a way that Theresa May was never capable of doing. Yes, it's interesting because I get this the opposite um, feeling. Um, being in Europe, it's um, um, I think that Europe. Um, at this point, would be happy to see UK out, um, and um, 
I mean, of anything is possible in terms of complications because of the coronavirus, etc. Why, why, the, why do you think they would, if you don't mind me asking, why would they be happy to see us out? I, I think it's, um, it's a, uh, this is obviously subjective. My, my sure, opinion. sure, sure. Every, um, everyone's, I think it's a question of how the negotiations have dragged. Okay. Um, and um, it's a question of um, um, whether uh, there's some trust lost in the process of those negotiations. Um, and uh, I, my feeling is that people are getting a bit uh, in Europe are getting a bit tired of, of this, and they, they just want to, to they just want this to be over to, in a certain extent. And um, but either way, they both of these scenarios point to a harder no deal Brexit. Well, yes, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, unfortunately, mm. because it's not good for anyone if that happens, and uh, because both sides, I think, um, are willing to play hardball uh, and. Um, to a certain extent, um, yeah, that's not positive for each side, um, and that's that. That therefore, I had the question on Sterling. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure which way it should go, but um, I think probably around 116 or whatever within that range is probably where it should be. Yeah, yeah. On the, on, sorry, sorry. Just to, to put on on topic of sort of matters EU, I was very struck by um, a post from I don't know if either of you know Wolfgang Munkau. Uh, who's who, who has a thing called uh, well he's he's on Twitter he's at Euro Briefing and he has a column in the um, the FT I think on Mondays but it, it, this is this is just something I throw into the mix which is from February twenty eighth refusal to close EU borders is unbelievably complacent Commission and ministers prioritise symbolic edifices of integration over protection of human life I find it very difficult to argue with that point. So, sorry, this is closure of your EU borders on the yeah, back of on the coronavirus, back. you mean? Or? Correct, yes, exactly. Well, I, I mean... Be, uh, because in the, in the rest of the world, governments basically say, well, we're, we're, we're shut to foreigners, effectively. But the, but the whole Schengen thing, you know, I, I get the sense that, exactly as he's, as he's stating outright, that the, the whole, you know, free movement project and the symbolism of that is taking, is taking priority over less, what you might call pragmatism. Well, but uh, I, I, have to, I have to disagree with that, Tim, because, I mean, okay, it's not about disagreement, but mm. the people... Well, it's, it's a perspective, it's a point of view, so... Yeah, yeah. but the borders have not been closed anywhere. I mean, we have been restricting travel to some parts of uh, some... I mean, some, some borders have been closed, for sure, um, but uh, people are trying to be pragmatic. I mean, they, for example, uh, uh, they're not... Like when it comes to Italy, uh, if, you, if I... I think, well, not Austria. Austria, Austria has closed its borders, hasn't it? Or at least has, has it rejected Italian travellers. I, I think I think there's small scrutiny going on at the borders for sure, mm. but I don't. I'm not aware of any country actually closing completely the borders. I think some countries, uh, like in the Middle East, have said no nationals from that country are allowed. Mm. Uh, but I don't. I'm not aware of any country in Europe or US. Uh, I think the US may have closed. Uh, uh, the border, uh, like Iranian nationals, but it, but it it could be the direction of travel, though. Yeah, but but yes, I, but I agree with you. This is kind of where we're going to a certain extent. Um, but I don't necessarily think that's something positive. I mean, I think free movement of people um, is actually good. Uh, I I don't think uh, if if we go if we take away free movement of people is necessarily positive. But uh, yeah, I mean that's again my view. Um, mm. Doesn't that depend on whether the 
you, you want to try to contain the virus or whether you just want to let it play out and then have pe- like people in the UK have been told I'm not sure what you've been told in Italy but we've been told if you're showing symptoms then to self isolate so yes. in other words just yes. stay at no, home I mean, that's, um, that's very prudent that's absolutely and that, that's the way it should be I mean look maybe we have to close the borders temporarily uh, but I don't think we should go to the extreme of um, of closing borders because you know as the saying goes if you if goods don't close borders, they ultimately armies. Yes, exactly. Armies. Yeah, armies do. So I mean, you don't know the the secondary consequences of uh, closing borders uh, could be profound. So I think we have to be careful uh, going that road. Yeah. Just on the subject of the EU and us leaving and Brexit, there is the main question about whether we are the first one to go and who might be second. And you know that Italy would be fairly near the top if not at the top of the queue of countries who might also be wanting to leave the european union yeah that's is possible i hope that's not the case um i mean look i can tell you in in, in italy the um they it, i don't necessarily i think the the, the view is split uh, i think the uh, they Europe has been positive for Italy uh, from the point of view of um, um, law and order, if you want, if you know what I mean. It's been negative in terms of the currency. I mean, there's a there's both positives and negatives, but um, it's not clear for people if they leave, if Italy leaves the EU, uh, whether they'll be better off or not. So I don't think necessarily there's support for leaving the EU, but in terms of economically, yes, Italy people do put Italy as the top country possibly to leave. Um, I mean, and, and, you know, there's a very strong, um, I mean, politics is, in Italy has always been a mess, so you never know exactly what will come out of it. Um, but yeah, economically, Italy is there as, as top. But I can tell you that if um, the feeling is that if, uh, if Europe gives a good deal to the UK, a deal that, um, um, at least if the narrative is that the Europe strikes a good deal for the UK, whereby, for example, there's some kind of um, um, no tariffs on goods, um, et cetera, et cetera, that will give the incentive of other countries within EU to want to, to get the same deal. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of that going on. And that, that's why I think um, Europe is more likely to play hardball Yes. Because they don't want to give the incentive of other countries to um, to do the same. Precisely. Uh, so, yeah, but that, but that doesn't. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think right at the beginning of the negotiations, it was very clear that that's what was going on. It was almost like we've got to beat these people to within an inch of their lives, otherwise. You know, other other countries are going to are going to say, "Oh, actually, I quite fancy that deal. That 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 sounds pretty good." You know, yeah. we can get our currency back maybe as well, and and actually start managing our own, you know, our own country for our own purpose. But well, I, I I get that actually, that's a, you made a very interesting point about the kind of the law and order side of things that perhaps I guess in the UK, or well, certainly I think for us, we have um, there's. No country's perfect. Let's let's just say that right at the outset. But I think one of the things that we've got as a strength is our is our legal system and yes. our, our, the relative trust that you have between 
companies and the legal system. Yes. Let's face it, you just don't have in Italy. It's a very no, convoluted right. system. You've got yes. notaries for everything because nobody trusts anybody about anything and it's a mess. And if you could inherit yes. a system that's more, you know, if you're kind of forced down the road of, of doing it a different way by the European Union, that's better for everybody, then, yes. you know, I can, that's actually a very, very interesting point. Um, yeah. and that kind of, yeah, I can see why it would be more of a, of a decision because up, up until now, it just seemed pretty straightforward. You know, you've got youth unemployment at such high levels, the economy doesn't seem to be working and you need the, the weakening Italian lira to survive, um, or to prosper and yeah. you just haven't got it. You've got the strong Euro and that's really not what you want. But, okay. So I, I, I make two points if, if I can on this. Please First, do. In, um, very few people in Europe uh, understand that very few people understand why UK decided to leave, because in their eyes UK already had um, uh, an advantageous position within the EU because it had its own currency. Um, it was not part of Schengen, so there was border control um, uh, within the UK and EU. Um, so they, you know, a lot of countries. Uh, in Europe, Italy specifically, would have loved to be in the, in the same position as the UK was within within Europe, had its own currency, uh, perhaps uh, you know uh, have its own border. I don't know about the border con control, passport control, etc. So people don't understand why the UK decided to leave. Um, and on on this second point, I wanted to make when you said weaker weaker currency, the EU the EU project had already completely destroyed the industrial part of, um, of Italy. I mean, when it comes to car manufacturing or anything heavy industry. Um, so Italy is not necessarily going to benefit that much from a weaker currency because the economy has changed massively since 2000 when it was really competing with Germany when it comes to heavy industry. Um, that's not there anymore. Um, plus also the whole global economy is changing, so it's moving away from manufacturing to more services uh, and, um, you know, going back to the global supply chains, etc. I think um, a weaker currency, I don't think, provides the boom that it used to under the old model, kind of uh, industrialization, mercantilist model of, of trade. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's a point that uh, that escapes a lot of people. That the wicked currency is not um, uh, it's not a panacea if um, if you don't have the industrial sector to export, or or actually if you don't have the legal framework infrastructure um, to benefit from. And that's the case for a lot of emerging market countries that they have very weak currencies, but they, they can't do anything with, with those currencies in any case. So. It's only a downside, if, in my opinion, if Italy decides to, to to go back to the lira because it has nothing to fall back on. What was sorry to interrupt, Anton. What, what I'm hearing from this is uh, reading through some of what you're saying is that the EU exists basically for the benefit of Germany and nobody else, because Ger Germany can, uh, you know, it, it is surely the prime beneficiary of of let's say a, a let's just call it a competitive currency. And and Germany is the sort of the China of of Europe. It's the, the the sort of manufacturing, exporting sort of powerhouse. So so what so what works for Germany almost by definition cannot work for Italy. 
yes, I think you're right. Um, but at the same time, Germany needs to sell its products somewhere. So, uh, yeah, Germany makes, someone has to consume, and German, yeah. German people necessarily don't consume that much. Mm. So, it kind of Germany and Italy, the core and the periphery are in this together. Um, you, you, can, it's, it, you cannot separate the two. It's the, the, the way the European uh, system has been set up. It's, um, and I think to some extent makes sense. The problem is that uh, you don't have the, um, uh, the, the, the cash flow statement doesn't work um, because Germany is producing, Italy and the periphery are consuming. Oh, they, that's why the service industry said they, you know, they rely on tourism now mostly. So it's all service industry, mm. which doesn't pay that much. So the arithmetic, the accounting doesn't work. Uh, and that's the problem to me. It's, uh, it's Germany itself. It, there's no point if Germany is producing stuff, but it cannot sell it to anyone. Um, it's in, so in other words, the end game is the same for Germany itself. It has products, but if it cannot sell them, it's, it's not good for anyone. And in, before, 2000, before the European crisis, Germany was funding the purchases of cars and, and refrigerators and, and everything else. Um, Germany was funding those purchases, uh, and the Italian and the Spanish and the Portuguese or whatever, they were buying them. So it's like a gigantic experiment in vendor financing. Well, yeah, to a certain extent, yes. But to a certain extent, the same thing was happening between, between China and the US. Yeah. Um, but it's, it was different because you don't have the union to a certain extent uh, between China and the US. Well, in, in Europe, at least you had the European Union. So there was a mechanism um, through Target 2, the Target 2 system, which actually was a backdoor fiscal stimulus, uh, fiscal transfers. Uh, the central bank, the ECB, had designed that uh, which allowed for, for this uh, for this trade to happen, and which is why uh, we never had the European crisis. Um, basically, it's it's almost as if there's a fiscal union in Europe, even though it's uh, it's a backdoor fiscal union. It's done by the central bank rather than by the governments. Mm. Um, so anyway, we I got a little bit off. Uh, off topic here. No, this um, is this is on topic. This is this is the sort of stuff we we need to talk about and we should talk about. I mean, the, you you say that the European Union has decimated the manufacturing industry, and that that's part of the problem. If you had the lira, then more people would have been would have been buying Italian cars because yes. they would have been cheaper. They would have had yes. greater profits. Then they would have been able to potentially manage those car companies with yeah. cheaper labor themselves across yeah. Europe and, and restructured. But instead yeah. they would, they were just like forced into the ground. And then the ones with the biggest money pockets could just come and pick them up. And, and then, you know, then you end up without a car industry, which is exactly what happened to us. Um, right. Um, so it's, it's, um, so there, there, there is a problem. How do you restructure an economy that it's, it, that did have a manufacturing base and now needs to move to okay. a service me, based and, and yeah. what, what services do, does Italy provide? Well, let me ask you a question actually on this. Um, so do you think this, um, I mean, do you think, um, I don't know about the UK, but uh, between Germany and Italy, would you say that Germany, uh, even in the old days, uh, maybe had a competitive advantage in making cars, and what happened was a natural, a natural thing. W yeah, would, would you say that? You you could say that. I mean, look, the, the, their cars were 
better made, for the want of a better word. I mean, the, the right. Fiat was always a cheaper car, right. but it was always, you know, going to go wrong. Whereas the German car would, was designed to do 200,000 miles, yeah. and that was that. But the Italian car was designed for the Italian environment, for nice right. sort of sunny weather. And if and if, for people to crash into you on a regular basis. And, it, and, it, and if, you, <laughs> if, you, if you had one in the UK with our, in cl- with our climate, you, you'd find that you'd end up with quite a lot of rust after right. a period of time and probably not 100,000 miles. I mean, I know that's a generalization, but that that's kind of... That's the kind of why I always say if you're going to buy a car, make it either German or Japanese. It's yes. like there's no other choice, really, yes. um, to my mind. And I still think that to a great extent, although, to be fair, I think um, some of the German cars haven't, haven't the latest ones yeah. hadn't been as good as they, they were. Like the Mercedes brand sort of got a little bit tarnished here and there. But, um, but by and large, yes, that's absolutely right. But so 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 are you saying that this is this was a natural? Uh, no, I, I don't know. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it looks to me that it's something that kind of would have happened in any case. Uh, it's Schumpeter competitive, whatever this this truck. Um, so no, I'm I'm not saying I'm not 100 percent sure, but uh, I'm looking at it and thinking, well, actually, it's um, it's not as bad as it looks. Um, Again, the problem is that um, I mean, the 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 problem is that um, there's still two different. Even though it's with European Union, Italy and Germany are still considered to be two, two different countries with two separate uh, treasuries, two separate governments, mm. two separate funding requirements. Um, so I think that that really the, is the problem. Um, you don't have the same problem in the states. I mean, I know people have made that comparison uh, between US and in Europe before. But I mean, Florida doesn't make any cars. Yeah, uh, you know, it's a vacation state, uh, and um, and so there are fiscal transfers between one state to another, uh, and things are running running um, smooth there. So I I don't know um, if that's eventually where the EU would go to. It's difficult to see how it could get there. I think in in either genera- genera- generational change. I mean, I'm looking at my kids. Um, I'm not Italian. I'm I'm actually British and Bulgarian. Um, my wife is Italian, but the kids they don't consider themselves necessarily either Italian or British or Bulgarian. They they um, I don't even know what they think they are. They they feel that uh, they were born when there was a free moment of, of people, and um, they that's how that's how their mentality is. Um, yeah. So maybe you need a massive generational change for people to think that actually Germany, Italy, Spain, whatever, is just a name. Well, um, I think that's a shame. I, I really do because I, I, before the euro was put together, it, the the argument was being used about America being a good model for it and it works there. But mm-hmm. that was clearly for me never going to work in that sense because how can – if you can stand in um, any European country and say I am European, mm-hmm. then that that would work. But if you if but the Germans will be the Germans, <clears throat> the French will be the French, the Italians will be the Italians. Just wait, just wait for the World Cup, and then you you start to see if you can start if you can start cheering for another team and say, well, yeah, well, you know, I'll I'll, I'll let Germany beat be Italy because because we're European. Then that's when you'll have. Um, no, I think it's a fair point, and and, I, and because at least everybody in America 
believes that they're American and they believe in the whole country and the whole concept. Whereas you cannot, like, we, we are so different across Europe. You know, you might have bullfighting in Spain where in, in the UK we'd find that appalling. You know, we have different uh, habits, we have different um, cultures, we have different languages, and we are different. And that is fantastic. That's to be embraced. It's not, it's not something that you want to homogenize. No, and, no, I agree with you. I, and, I and I think it's such a shame that this is that this is as a concept it was originally designed out of well you know businesses have got to change currencies in order to do business across europe why don't we get rid of that currency and get rid of that cost and it will create jobs and it will it will be prosperous and and it's done completely without thought of what on earth people are doing you know so yeah they get rid of the currency and then they but they have no understanding of how markets truly work and it's um and it's it comes from such stupid simplistic starting points that create the mess that we're in now and everything that's happened since the European Union being created has been an attempt to patch up the problems that continually form and the fact that you, you the only way this this breaks out was my view back back in 1999-2000 was be when you have massive political unrest and and um you you have basically the people rise up and just say look we're not taking any more of this we're going to start to vote for anti-eu um parties who look to either break it up or disrupt it or whatever and that seems to be when everything's prosperous it's very very hard to do that but you made a very good point about the youth and whether you need a generational change. You know, if if you're sitting in Italy at the moment as a teenager looking for a job, you probably not got particularly great prospects in Italy, yeah. have you? No. I mean, I'm not yeah, I'm not no, making no. that up, am I? No, no, no. You're, you're you're right. I mean, it's it's you're awful. Right. It's awful. You've got to go to another country, um, and you've got to abandon the country that you possibly love and the weather and everything else and the culture to go to somewhere else. Because the prospects are better. I mean, how can the European Union be working? And so, if you get offered a change, um, you know, m maybe Italy would lead the way in in IT or some other some other area. But it, it's not. It can't flourish because it can't it can't manage itself. Well, uh, look, I think it's it's a it's a it's a complicated issue to to, to discuss. I think. Um, I think you, may, you bring some very good points, and, and I agree with, with those. Um, my point simply is the, men, the mentality of people, and my question is whether uh, that would change by looking at, at, at my children. And um, But, yeah, your points about uh, work prospects are very valid, and your point that the EU is not done in the proper ways is also correct. Uh, now, what, what, I, what I will disagree with you is that we should go back to the way it was. I think we should improve the EU rather than go back to the way it was because sure. going back to the way it was, I think will 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 create the issues that we had before between countries. I would humbly suggest that the EU has shown it is unreformable. <laughs> but there's a point about that that I would make Anton if you if you don't mind yeah. me cutting in here. Um yeah. that what everybody's doing is they they're going back to the time before the Euro European Union, which, yeah. which was 98, 99, when, when the, the Euro, well, not the European Union, but the, when the Euro came in was 98, 99. Yeah. And what, what they're forgetting is that the world 
automatically everywhere moved on a very long way with the with technology you know yeah. this has been a massive a massive change like bigger than the industrial age in some ways yeah and and therefore you you didn't have to you know when you say going back people think oh my god i remember what it was like back then and you know technology and and everything else didn't work in the same way and that that seems like the dark ages mm. so thinking that that going back would be going back to that is not necessarily what you'd be going back to okay. what you could be doing is opening a door to a brighter new future that that rather than being hooked into a system that is going to limp along for another 10 years and then eventually implode and cause an even bigger problem it's a bit like the it's a bit like the way the markets have been gamed higher for all these years and the big problem was that the the banks overlent they ended up with debts that yeah. they couldn't pay so the government stepped in and they're trying to contain that problem by yeah. keeping interest rates artificially low and, and pumping money into the system which they are yeah. still doing but they haven't addressed the problem and eventually the market addresses the problem and we may you know in this discussion that we're having be at the beginning of a big correction um, mm. that that unwinds everything no matter and shows actually how redundant the central banks are going to be because mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to fight it. Um, you know, that that that's the risk. And that, that's I guess that's the risk of continuing down the European Union route. But I'd also sure. make one final point it, that people <clears throat> like Tim and myself will come under, and I you, you see it on social media, you come under tremendous um, flack and animosity from people who want to change their Facebook page to a flag of the European Union and mm -hmm. make it sound like this is some kind of racial uh, divide that we've got going on here. Mm -hmm. And it's absolutely not the case. You know, mm -hmm. we have a a kind of general, how can you put it, um, love-hate relationship with the French for many reasons, mm -hmm. but we, we genuinely don't hold any animosity towards any nation mm. or anybody yeah. it's just yeah. a system that doesn't work it's we're well, not speak saying for yourself speak for yourself paul i fucking hate the frog <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know you know it's like um to to tie that into why we we're anti the eu has got nothing to do with being anti german italian yeah. french spanish or anything and oh, of course but that that just gets folded in as soon as you say we don't yeah. think it works. It's like oh, you're just racist. Well, the, no, you know the, re the really interesting dynamic of this is is something that's that's happening globally, uh, i.e., not least in in the states, where the the under the sort of the the underclass of the younger generation that has been arguably the prime victim of of capitalism is now reacting by by seeking answers in the most absurd forms of socialism. It's really incredible. I remember talking to somebody straight after the the um, the, the vote um, to leave, and they were they were saying, "Oh, I'm I'm very very sad. I'm very sad about this vote. It's terrible." Oh, people but lost that, their people. People lost their minds. But I, but I was like, well, "Okay, but why?" And just just out of interest, what, what's what's the problem? Well, I, you know, I'm not going to be able to to travel freely around Europe anymore. We won't be able to go on holiday in Europe anymore. So, so, uh, sorry, what? And, and how, how many times have you actually been on holiday in Europe? Well, you know, I haven't been, but, you know, but now I can't. It's like... Erasmus uh, Project, uh, Erasmus. Uh, but but who's, who says you can't? Who's, who says? And who says you can't have the, the, the Schengen Agreement anyway when we're outside of the European Union? There are countries that have got the agreement that aren't in the European Union. 
So what what are you talking about? It's like so people pick up on these these stupid things that they think they're going to not be able to do, which A, they're not doing anyway. And even if they are doing, okay, it might mean that it's the equivalent of going to America. I've got to go to America this year, so I'm going to have to buy a visa. Okay, big deal. I pay whatever it is, $25, and I get my visa for two years and I go to America. Okay, I go in a different queue and it takes for ages and it's not particularly fun. But so what? You know, that's not that's not like any reason to to suddenly say, I think, you know, we should have one, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm anti-American and I think, you know, we they should be part of the European Union as well, you know, because they just want to manage their borders in a different way. I mean, it's just insane. And that's uh, just one reason. Yeah, I, I look, I think it's a good point. It's But if, if Italy uh, leaves the European Union, uh, it will resort back to its own resources. I think what will happen is Italy doesn't have the institutional framework um, to be competitive. And it never had it. With the European Union, it has a little bit better institutional framework. So what I'm trying to say is UK leaving from a position of strength in your, from what you're saying, is 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 actually one thing. But um, a country like Italy leaving the EU, um, it will become an emerging market country because it, it it already has lost its competitiveness in industry. It it cannot all of a sudden become even with massively weak currency. It's not going to be able to, to all of a sudden beat uh, German car manufacturing or whatever. So, um, but it, it just needs to compete. A- it needs to compete in a different area. I mean, uh, Italian design is arguably one of the best in the world. I mean, nobody yes, designs anything as beautifully as the Italians. Yes, so isn't that something that isn't that something yes. that they could? You know, I, I know I'm simplifying things, but so so in some ways these these are you know we're saying German efficiency, but don't, German design is never going to be like Italian design. No, but that's that's a luxury industry. That's a very niche industry. Well, look it's at the, like, look at the Swiss luxury f- watches and and, uh, uh, that's, and gone. that's gone. Has it that's gone? Luxury, uh, so, well, it's, I mean, again, it's a very small industry. Uh, it's 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 not a, it's not um and it's uh, it's not an it's not an industry that can that can sustain a country. And Switzerland is very different because the legal and institutional framework in Switzerland is, is on par with the UK. Uh, it's very different from, from Italy. Um, so Italy, Italy looks at EU as an anchor in a good way and in a bad way. It obviously has both ways. But um, so that's the way, that's the feeling I get from, from living here. It's, um, you know, the, if, if Italy leaves, uh, what the and 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 uh, you, you, young people uh, have to get a working visa to go to Germany. Do you think that will be good for young people? They, they, it's not like all of a sudden there'll be jobs here for them because Italy's left. It's very different from the way in UK. You don't. I mean, you, I hear what you're saying. You know, going on vacation to Europe. It's not about necessarily about going on vacation. No, it's I mean, it, fact, it, yes. Sorry, sorry to cut in there. I di- I didn't mean that that was the only reason. I was just yes, saying yes, that it was. It's funny that. Funny what people suddenly. It became start. quite a pop. It became quite a popular narrative. No, no, no. Yes, but but, but you're but right. Can... You're right. But, but, but it, what I'm saying is that if if um, if what you want 
for any country, which seems to be the most obvious thing, is not to have to go to another country for work I anyway. Mean, so you, yes. so it, yes. you need reform from within yes. to create something that yes. other people, other countries will be going, I want to go to Italy because this is where X is yes. happening. And, and it doesn't seem to be conducive to what the EU is doing. I mean, they might be giving you money and they might be sort of propping up and bailing out the the banks, um, you know, inadvertently or or explicitly. But but that's not that's not going to help you um, but, in the long yes. term. But I mean, to some extent, this this is a trend that's been going on, not just in Europe. I mean, this is a trend. This is this is part of the same trend that's happening in this in the in the US. Uh, for monopolization. I mean, you, all, you mm. have a couple of uh, companies now that are dominating an industry, and that's it. It's it's completely. This, this is exactly the same trend um, as in Europe. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's very basically extreme capitalism. To go back to Tim's point, it's why that's why people are going back and looking for for the extreme left. It's because they've been given the extreme right in terms of uh, not necessarily politics, uh, even though that's also the case, but in terms of uh, market. Um, Mar uh, markets. So you you have extreme olig oligopoly, extreme man man uh, mo monopoly. Um, so one or two massive companies in the states dominate the industry, and no one else can compete. Uh, as the same equivalent of Germany dominating the European car manufacturing industry. Yes. Um, so I think it's a very it, it's it's a, something that needs to be addressed uh, for sure, uh, Paul. And I think that's the issue. But um, I think the way to address it is to look at it in, in those very broad terms, uh, because that's that's where the roots are. I think, um, and I don't have the answer to it. Um, but I don't think closing the borders or separating things, uh, breaking things apart, is necessarily the way forward. Because I don't think that's the problem. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. But um, yeah. Yeah, that that's a, a very interesting point you make. Very interesting. I mean, it, it, just to explain how I visualize it, I I think that a um, a country looking out for its own interest and able to make laws quickly and able to move nimbly in a crisis is one that will do better than a super state system where everything has to be agreed over a longer period of time that's a kind of middle road that helps everybody rather than something that is tailored towards that particular country um is is better so i so it's like smaller companies uh, have an advantage because they can move quicker in certain aspects and and that's mm. how i see that, that, that there is there is an advantage of being big in a block but there's also disadvantages as well and mm. and um it depends on the economic environment as to which one of those uh it w will be the most advantageous and when i think i when, think it was the historian neil ferguson that suggested that europe was better off and was more creative and commercially successful and and inventive and all of these things when it was lots and lots of little states all competing with each other. Yes. And that's, and there's that's a, the and there's, a and, and there's a yeah, and there's a natural argument, I think. I mean, I, I've been convinced this for years um, that basically size is, in every sense, size is the enemy of performance. So that once you get beyond that, it's Albert Bartlett, who I continually refer to, um, whose presentation on growth is, is outstanding and, and extremely popular on, on YouTube. 
the, the presentation is called Arithmetic, Population and Energy, I think, but it's extremely compelling stuff. And he, ma he makes one of his big points is, and, and that the quote is, for any entity beyond maturity, further growth is either obesity or cancer. And the, I'd say the single biggest problem aspect of the, the EU project is it's just become too big. And it, it is not in the underlying members' best economic or commercial or any other interests um, to, to be part of a gigantic committee. Go back, we're circling back 180 or 360 degrees from the comment I think I made at the top of the show, which is Buffett's idea of a committee meeting was looking in the mirror. Yeah, it's a fair point. Uh, but uh, yeah. It will be interesting to see, as always, how things pan out and it's uh do you guys think um do you think that this will be a q i mean how can it not be a q1 problem in the sense that you mean limited to q1 or yeah or limited i mean unless there's something we're not being told about this virus how could it how could it extend into the summer and make it so that there will be i i i, would, I mean i'm trying to play devil's advocate because i i think i kind of agree with what i perceive to be your skepticism that this is gonna be a long-term issue to, to to play devil's advocate that kind of presumes that they'll find a vaccine for it in the next few months. If that doesn't turn out to be the case, then I think all bets are off. But in the meantime, you know, you don't need much more than an alarmist media stoking the fires. And you can see that, I mean, it is quite clear that, you know, as we were talking, early, talking about earlier, supply lines are being sort of frozen, trade is being frozen, travel is being frozen. Um, I, I, I think this could, 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 it could and should relatively easily reverse, but there is that there is. I think there is a risk that it, it could actually be a lot worse. Or in the in the words of Lily Tomlin, things will get a lot worse before they get worse. I mean, that doesn't that doesn't mean that the markets won't go down a lot for other reasons. Exactly. exactly. Well, this is this is exactly the point. The power of narrative is you know yeah. is clearly the issue. But um, but so, just just but, but just to just to refine the question, it based on on how flu works do we we don't get flu in the summer so it would even if it was a you know without Assu vaccine, assuming it is a flu like thing then yes. that's a fair fair presumption yes yeah. like one yes. oh i see so what you're saying is there there is potential for this to not stop in the summer as it would normally well you get the you get a lot of cases in iran where it's not that cold and you get some cases in the middle east uh, generally, people think it's like the flu, so you have a point. But there, there's so many things we don't know about the virus. I see. Um, I see. As per Tim, so I think there's a lot of questions. There, there are a lot of questions, and in I mean, look, airlines uh, had stopped flying and announced they will stop flying to to China already. I think two or three weeks ago, and they said some of the American airlines, some of the European airlines, they said all the way through April. So, you know, they, and that's before we kind of have these now cases in Italy and um, in the US. So they, they've taken a long, they, they've taken a lot of precautions and um, mm. they're not all of a sudden going to rush back and open up, even though the Chinese are opening up the country. Um, they're not going to, they, I don't think there'll be a rush back to um, go back to normal um, that quickly. Even if this is nothing, even if it's just a flu, so I think uh, at best you get a uh, April, May, June, maybe. I think that's the best. Worst is that really paralyzes um, 
spaffo or really paralyzes things. And I kind of agree with him. The, the media is not helping here. Um, but um, the problem is that there's uncertainty. And, and just to, to continue this on a, from a market's perspective, what coronavirus has started you know, may develop a momentum of its own that has nothing to do with coronavirus anymore. The, the, the market then corrects for you know, other, other you know, uh, emotional reasons, let's say. Yes. Well, just the fact that it's been gamed higher and is... Well, with the fact that we've had basically a 10-year rally, or certainly the US, which is the largest market, has had a 10-year rally in it, and you know, the air was already getting pretty thin up here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could see, you could see I mean, the, the, so for example, buybacks, you know, would this cause companies all of a sudden to, I mean, to, uh, to slow down on share buybacks? Um, would actually... There'll be new regulation on share buybacks independently of the coronavirus on, on you know, something if Sanders, for example, wins the U.S. Uh, I mean, until probably two weeks ago, I thought Trump probably is uh, is the, the most likely um, uh, next president of the U.S. Nowadays, depending on how the coronavirus plays out in the U.S., you know, it's not so certain. Um, and I think that's the problem. The problem is the government's overreacting because they want to make sure that they stay in power. And they know very well that if they don't, uh, if, if, if they don't want to take any chances. And I, th- and I think it's worth saying, sorry, uh, Anton, I think it's also worth saying that if Sanders were to be elected, that is the equivalent of a, a Corbyn being elected here. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. So um, that, that the probability of Sanders being elected has risen. I mean, um, I still think probably Trump is the, the most accurate. Uh, next president, but things happen on the margin. And um, but so I, I I agree with the view that stock market can can continue to um, to sell off for other reasons, even if coronavirus um, becomes a not big deal. Yeah. So I think on that note, um, we should move to media picks. What do you think, Tim? Let's go for it. So yeah. Anton, in case we didn't ad- ad- advise you earlier, we tend to finish off with a, a, what we call a media picks round, which is simply a book or a film or a blog or anything that you've seen, read or heard, can be recently, can be a- a- any t- any time really, that, that you either like, have really liked or really hated. Um, it's not compulsory, so you don't have to do it, but uh, this is, we, we tend to sort of round things off in a fe- hopefully fairly lighthearted way. Um, keeping to that light-hearted spirit, one of the things I'm going to mention is a, a free uh, game you can play online called Pandemic 2. And Pan- Pandemic 2, uh, it, it, although it might sound like it's um, uh, uh, a very recent sort of coronavirus, actually, I, I think I discovered it about 10 years ago, um, and we, I can, we can provide a link to it, it uh, on the, in the show notes. But pandemic two is scary stuff when you when you start to think about you know particularly the coronavirus and in pandemic two basically what's interesting about it is you play you play the virus or actually you get a choice you can be a virus or a parasite or a bacterium and the intent the net the intention is that you basically you get more points the more people you can kill off and it obviously is extremely poor taste but nevertheless it's 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 intriguing because. Yeah, firstly, it shows you exactly how viruses spread and you get to control. For example, the more points you get, the more then you can say, OK, or I'm going to make it airborne now or I'm going to make it waterborne or I'm going to make it spread through rats or mice or whatever. And in the meantime, there's a global map which shows, it's an interactive global map which shows 
you know, boats gently sort of chugging along from one country to another, from one continent to another, and you see planes whizzing about. And on the left of the screen, there's a sort of s- scrolling news thing, which suddenly says, you know, you know, Israel closes borders or, you know, no signs of life reported in the southern United States or whatever. And it's just, it, it really brings home in the light of coronavirus just how vulnerable a, glo- a properly globalized world is to, this, to the, precisely this kind of outbreak. So it's very sobering stuff. And that's that's pandemic too, and it's uh, obviously hours of fun for all the family. <laughs> Talking of all the family, mine is a film, and you—I don't know if you've seen this, but it's called—it's not a new film. It's called Captain Fantastic, and it was recently on the BBC, but I saw it before. And for anyone who wants, who has a kind of critical thinking uh, mindset, and wants to instill that in other people or their children, then this is the film for you. I've seen this film. It's terrific. It's terrific. It's an absolutely brilliant film. Um, and so I would recommend that to anybody. It's a great message about teaching yourself, thinking for yourself, and also the use of technology and, and you know, living in, living in an isolated world. It's actually, you know, a, a fantastic film. I'm sure anybody listening to this would really enjoy it and the messages behind it. Um, so, Anton, do you have um, do you have anything? I mean, it doesn't have to be a film or a game. It can be like a really good book that you want your children to read that you'd pass on or, or something like that. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It didn't warn me on this. It's much, it's much more fun when we don't give people advance warning. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, since, since you could, since I, I, I don't want to... to I want to think of something funny, and um, along those lines, it's, it's a movie that um, it's an it's an Italian movie, um, which is very similar to um, uh, the idea of Breaking Bad, uh, the oh, American series, right. uh, and it's called um, I Can Stop When I Want. And the topic of the movie uh, it's actually three series. Um, it's actually a movie. It's not like Breaking Bad episodes, but they're three series. And normally, when you have um, uh, like uh, th- trilogies, the, only the first one is good. This one, all three of them are good. And I'm pretty sure you can find it in in English as well. Um, but it's it's about um, a group of Italian um, uh, scientists who um, who basically are doing. Um, they're very smart, very intelligent, but they cannot find proper jobs. Um, so they work as um, a, a cook in in a Chinese restaurant. One of them, the other one works. And the other two work um, at, the petrol, at the petrol station. Um, and one of them, so they're all friends from university. Uh, and um, one of them uh, finds a way to produce um, uh, legal drugs. Uh, <laughs> what what that means is basically um, it, it, as long as the drug is not, um, um, on, it's not listed on some Italian uh, website as being illegal, you're not in trouble. Um, so because they're scientists and they're very smart, they, they produce this um, legal drug and they become very rich. And so the whole movie is a comedy. It's a dark comedy. It, it's about uh, what happens to them and they get involved with um, the local mafia and, and things like this. So it's, um, it's a black comedy. And um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I liked it a lot. This, this, sounds, this sounds terrific. Yeah, that sounds, sounds absolutely great. terrific. But on, on this, there's actually a very funny Italian, um, it's only in Italian, whereby the, the mafia here decides to get into the business of instead of uh, distributing cocaine and stuff, 
they're getting into the business of distributing uh, hand sanitizers because the price is going up. <laughs> so that's the, it's, it's only a, a three minute clip and it's only in Italian. Otherwise I would have sent it to you, but it's, it's very funny. If you've got a link that, to it, we will share it. And yes. uh, yeah, that'd be great. Brilliant. Oh, I'll, I love I'll it. Put thank it on, on Tim's email. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Anton, just to say a very big thank you for giving us your thoughts and your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much to you, to both you, Tim, and, and to Paul uh, for allowing me to be on. The, and I really enjoyed it. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it was a very good conversation. Just before you go, um, for the benefit of the listeners who would like to get in contact with you or maybe follow you and um, read more of your work, could you tell us how they might do that? Do you have a Twitter? Could we have a link to your blog, etc.? So the, the blog is uh, beyondoverton.com. Um, the Twitter handle is AN10NEV. Um, and yeah, I'm quite active on Twitter. The blog, uh, I write stuff as it comes. Um, and um, that's probably Twitter is the best way um, to do it, yeah. Well, we'll put links to those. I'm pleased that your Twitter handle is very similar to mine, in, which has been sometimes called a password uh yes yes exactly <laughs> I, I did it exactly yes. i'm sorry about that yeah that's okay mine's the same so that's perfect thank you once again anton it's been a real pleasure thank you. and uh thank you. and good luck with the fund and we'll we'll catch up with you in the year if we can that's the post indeed okay have a have a good the rest of the weekend guys you, you too you take too. care thanks, thanks anton thank you bye-bye bye-bye brilliant thanks tim that's superb excellent excellent Thanks again, Tim. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Cheerio. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor. 